Be advised, the following episode contains content that may not be appropriate for all audiences. When I was in Somalia, I could never meet someone from Rwanda or, you know, Cambodia or China or Japan. You know, you don't know these people. And in Kenya, it was, I couldn't meet them. But here, we all, one day and one moment, all became one nation. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience in an effort to help us better understand one another. Abdi Noor Iftin was just six years old when civil war broke out in Somalia. He fled terrorists who wanted to kill him. Poverty and starvation also haunted him and his family. As a child, he was so fascinated with American culture that he became known as Abdi American. He taught himself English by watching American action movies. Eventually, he overcame staggering odds and won a slot in the diversity immigrant visa lottery. In 2018, he published a memoir, Call Me American, the story of his childhood in Somalia, his escape to a refugee camp in Kenya, and his immigration here to the U.S. He now lives in Maine, where this year he was sworn in as a U.S. citizen. Abdi, I'm grateful you're here. I'm a naturalized citizen myself. I was born in Germany, and I have a soft spot in my heart for fellow immigrants. You make this country a better place, and reading your story, I realized just how incredible it is that you're even here, considering all the obstacles that were in your way. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate that. Do you feel that way yourself? I think I feel that at some point I depended, it, everything depended on destiny, and uh I fought for it, you know, I fought for what I have, I fought for getting here. Um, there were times it felt like it was not working out. Uh, there were other times that I felt like I was invisible to the system, to the U.S., uh, that nobody was interested in even trying to get to know the struggles that I have been going through to only, you know, get to the American dream, right? Um, and there was the other moments that, I could have easily joined an army where I come in Somalia. Um, that was an option that was open for me. But one thing that distracted me from doing that was the idea of, of believing in the idea of America. So you landed in 2014 at Logan Airport in mm -hmm. Boston, Massachusetts. What was running through your mind when you saw the plane touch down? Um, it had... The same feeling when you touch the moon, you know, the surface of the moon. It, I, I really wondered what the gravity feeling would be like. You know, I, I, I was 29 years old, but I felt more like a six-year-old kid going to, um, to the most exciting parts in Florida. But America was angry the day that I landed because uh, Michael Brown, a young African-American man, was murdered uh, just a few hours before I landed. And um, Ferguson, Missouri was on fire. Pretty much what we have going on today uh, after, uh, you know, George Floyd's uh, murder. That was, that was America at the time uh, that I came to. Uh, super angry, frustrated, Black Lives Matter just started and it was, you know, skyrocketing. Um, I didn't know anything about that. This is something I will know much later. Uh, but I did not want, that was my honeymoon, you know, the, the, the life that I fought for a long time and I really wanted to enjoy it. Uh, the family that sponsored me and supported me had come up from Maine and were waiting at the parking lot in Boston and holding a sign that says my name. So everything more felt like coming out of a prison after many, many, many years, you know, gaining that freedom that you have been looking for. And the fact that um, I went through the security check at, at Boston Airport without being detained 
and jumping in the back of a car and driving a couple hours um, to Maine was the greatest freedom that I've ever received in my whole life, 29 years of my life. We'll talk about race relations in the U.S. a little bit later on in the interview, but let's jump forward to January of this year, 2020, and you were naturalized as a citizen here in Maine. So what was that day like? Well, that day came after five years of being in the U.S. as a permanent resident. And, you know, even though I was so excited being in the U.S., I only realized before I became a citizen that I do not have some rights in this country as a permanent resident. And those rights included the right to vote, the right to run for office, the right to serve in a jury. I mean, so many things that you cannot. And, and also in the, in the political climate we have today and the election of 2016 and the travel ban has stopped, you know, me from even trying to cross into neighboring Canada let alone going up to Mexico. You know, I, I felt like, again, unfortunately, I felt like I was in prison um, in the world's amazing country that I've dreamed about growing up as a kid. January was, again, another liberating moment for me where I had to invite one of our senators, Senator Angus King in Maine, and he had accepted and came over to say a few words. And I had, uh, I led the uh, Oath of Allegiance, you know, and I was dressed up and hundreds of people came over. You uh, look like an American flag. Um, I was wearing an American, this, uh, a tie that was the Stars and the Stripes. And that bright I, blue blazer. Right, exactly. And um, because that was a moment, right? I mean, it was... It was a winter day. It was pretty freezing cold outside. I had to shovel uh, the driveway to get to the naturalization that day, but it meant everything. People have come over from all over the country. Um, someone had uh, put my mom on the phone that day just for her to listen to to the emotions, to the crowd, you know, how things were going. And uh, it was 26 different nationalities and 46, uh, 46 people. Uh, from all over the world that took the naturalization that day. And here's what I felt. You know, America is, is a land of immigrants because when I was in Somalia, I could never meet someone from Rwanda or, you know, Cambodia or China or Japan. You know, you don't know these people. And in Kenya, it was, I couldn't meet them. But here, we all, one day and one moment, all became one nation. You know, we became one America. That's uh, what's so beautiful for, about this country. It is. And that's the America that I want to live in. So the book comes out a few years after you've been here in the U.S. It was a really difficult project for you to write, you'd said. Call Me American. What prompted you to write your memoir? There are stories that many Americans don't understand about immigrants and immigration and refugees. And Somalia has been one of those forgotten countries that you would not hear in NPR that much unless there's a bombing and, and there's a lot of murdering uh, or people dying. Um, the sense of community was missing. Anywhere for Somalis, you know, uh, and there's a part in my book that I say, I realized that being a Somali, that nowhere is safe, even in the U.S. However, Hollywood put together two movie, films that depict Somalia. One is about pirates and one is about Somali warlords fighting the U.S. Army. Neither positive images of the country. Neither positive images in the country because the human side of the story is missing. So I focused on my book, my family and myself, and the stories of struggle, survival, hope, and dreams, and resilience, you know? I mean, the beauty of the nomadic lifestyle in Somalia, how my, much my mother had enjoyed the wealth that they had, all the animals that surrounded them, and their beautiful life, which uh, was gone, uh, pretty much because of the droughts and, and the famine. And then, you know, they come to the city and... and my dad built a new uh, career. He became a 
basketball player and he was making a pretty good money. And I was born into that middle class family, you know, with food in the house. I only cried when I couldn't find snacks, you know, and, and my dad would just hold my hand and take me to the next, uh, you know, snack bar and picked up all the things that I needed. So I was sort of enjoying this beautiful life the moment I was born and when I was five until the war begins. American action films had become a way out of the misery, you know, as you can remember. Um, how that little bit of an action film can help a child, first of all, pick up English and then become inspired and motivated by those things that, you know, I saw in the movies and f run around and feel like I want to live this life. And it's possible. And, you know, it can happen. And time after time, things got complicated uh, until the movie theater was bombed, um, until, you know, I could have almost been murdered for going to the beach with a woman. You know, or that day when um, I was forcibly made to take allegiance, you know, to, to the Islamic radical radical groups saying, okay, next thing we do, we need to do is take a, an AK-47. And then they were teaching us how to shoot an American. As a young person. As a young person. Yeah. Shoot him by the heart, shoot him by the head. That's, that's exactly what it was. Um, I had to fight that rhetoric and ideology of it by basically doing something that was extremely dangerous and could have ended my life any moment, which, which was becoming a journalist. So I started uh, doing audio diaries with cell phone and I sent those audio diaries to NPR and NPR definitely put my voice, you know, on the radio. Um, I had to agree with it and they said, this could take your life. You want to do it? And I said, I don't have any choice. So put that voice on the radio. And that is how my story got out. And that's how the family that I am with right now sponsored me into the U.S. Heard my story one morning while they were fixing their pancake. You know, their son, who's my age, was around, you know, and just off college. And the daughter was in high school. You know, the whole thing, they felt like, gosh, here's another young man no family, struggling, no home, and we need to do something about it. And that was one of the lucky moments in life where, you know, I found network and a connection and people that I could connect with and, you know, eventually um, would help uh, shape together uh, the, the way forward. Was this book ever translated into Somali? Well, I have written the Somali version of my book uh, while I was writing the English because I I had to do that, you know, it's it's my, I'm still thinking in my native language. Um, the reason but, I ask, it doesn't necessarily put Somalia in the best light. Does it concern you that your family and or your friends may get some blowback because of the story being out in Somalia? Um, I don't think that's the case. You know, I mean, every single Somali agrees what happened in our country. There's no denial of it. But it also depends who you ask. I mean, it's more like, the, you know, the, the tribal issues that are in my book are things that might endanger my family because certain tribes don't want, you know, their stories to be put out because that, uh, you know, sort of puts them on the path to uh, revolution. You know, people will, will have to start fighting them back. Uh, and it's still the truth. In Somalia, we have a a predominantly a dominant tribe that is not going to let anybody else take power. So it's just one thing, you know, it's... it's That's not your tribe though, right? No, it's not. My tribe's not even allowed to run for office at all. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's Somalia. And, you know, as, as, as long as you are a farmer and you're not carrying a, a weapon at all, you don't have a say in the power sharing system. So in Somalia, the Rahanwain, which is my tribe, have, have, they live between the two rivers. And they're an agricultural community, and they love their animals. But they're also, the word Rahan really means large. So it's a large tribe. You can find them anywhere in Somalia. If they take a weapon, they can take the country back if they really fight. But they're not doing that. By sheer number. By sheer Not number. because they have the power. No, no. Uh, now, they still don't have enough, uh, the power. 
And so in this case, as a successful Somali who wrote a book, who's going to college, and if I go back to Somalia, it's actually easier to run for office in the U.S. than in Somalia. So what does that really mean? That's, there's injustice right there. Um, some people might tell you it's not. Some people might say it's a God-given gift that we only have the power, more like Saudi Arabia, you know, where the king can only inherit, you know, can, can only, you know, give the power to the, to the next person, but not the whole, you know. So it's more like that where small group are trying to take over the power and let anybody else just be there and, you know, not be anybody. So I'm fighting back that. So that there's a lot of, you know, fights that I'm involved in. And how do I do that? I, I have to write a book because the best way to fight back is to tell the story the way it is, to let the world know what exactly is happening. So that, yes, could endanger my family. And I took the decision myself to just do that because I, I, I don't have to be afraid of anybody to not really tell the truth, you know, or the story the way it is. Well, that's that. But then I think um, women, Somali women, doesn't, doesn't matter what tribe they belong to, have felt completely empowered by my story. That's um, great. Yes, mostly because... They never could not dare to write anything about female genital mutilation, which is included in my memoir, um, talking about my own family and how traumatizing that was, but how it's still acceptable, you know. Um, but I think most of the Somali women would be feeling like being oppressed and the man, the dominant man, would not want them to really speak about that. Um, now it's about time. So you might see women rising up, you know, doing activities and organizing, you know, um, Somali women all over the country. And I see that, you know, my eyes can catch those. And I think it's a huge thing. And I feel like I don't care. It's 100 years from now. If this really becomes something successful, if Somalia has a place for women and that woman can run something and that they can speak freely, I feel like I've, I've done my job. So that, that's where the fight is right now. Just so we're all clear on this practice, female genital mutilation involves the partial or total removal of the external genitalia. It has zero health benefits, but many health complications, including difficulty urinating or passing menstrual blood, infections, severe bleeding, difficulty getting pregnant, childbirth complications, and sometimes even death. And this is carried out on young girls some as young as infants, up to their teenage years. Abdi, I read on social media that your book will be turned into a miniseries. Can you explain? Um, now, we are putting together 22 miniseries, um, which might end up either on Netflix or HBO or somewhere else. Um, when is it coming out? I don't know yet. We have We definitely have to... Uh, agree on when the shooting starts. And so I think it's another year or so that uh, the work has to be done. And you would be in it? Am I playing myself? I don't think I am. No? Well, I mean, I signed a contract, so I sold the rights to my story. They decide. They decide. But I have some say in it. Um, I am part of the executive production, meaning, you know, I, I will be there. I'm not going to let them run away with my story and I'm not going to stick around here. You know, so I'll be right there um, in whatever they want to write. Um, um, so I want to see. I want to see that little kid who represents me. It's a kid, um, you know, I just want I just want something that's real. That's exciting. Yeah. Let's get back to the book. What's your favorite passage and could you read that for us? Well, my book is my, you know, everything Everything in the book is my favorite. Um, but I would like to read from page 306. Um, kind of summarizes everything. Um, and I would also say, if I say four years, you know, now it's, it's almost six years. So I wrote the book a couple years ago. All right, here it goes. In the four years since I arrived in America... I have been on radio, television, in newspapers, and to conferences. 
I was a keynote speaker at several universities, including the University of Maine. I often talk to high school students around the state. I've traveled as far as Nashville to speak at a Vanderbilt University. Every time I tell my story, I'm reminded how lucky I am to be here. Abdi Eftin, a child of war in Mogadishu, with no more formal education than Malim Basis Madrasa. Now, speaking at famous universities, once I wanted to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger, now my idols are those students I meet. I have enrolled at the University of Southern Maine and plan to eventually graduate to study law. Someday, I have to stand for president of Somalia. No one from my Rahanwen clan is yet able to run for Somali president. They're still considered lower class and unfit for the job under the power sharing system set up after independence in 1960. But the Rahanwen are many and politics can change. So someday I would like to be Somali's first Rahanwen president. But I want to run as a Somali American, not a Rahanwen, promising peace and justice for all Somalis regardless of clan. I want to land at Mogadishu Airport one day with a heart full of love and ambition for my people. Somalis overseas send back 1.4 billion every year, a billion dollars every year, to their home country. According to a uh, 2016 World Bank report through remittances to family members, this is more than all foreign government aid, but I think we could do more. What if we could spend that money to start schools in Somalia, teaching more than just the Quran? What if we built roads, sanitation system, hospitals, apartment buildings? Islamic extremism is still the greatest roadblock. Al-Shabaab prefers madrasas and jail soldiers to clinics and colleges. And because they thrive on chaos, they love Trump and other politicians around the world who shake their swords at Islam. But radical Muslims do not represent Islam, nor do they represent the hopes and dreams of Somali people. Also in the book, Somalia you describe as a country that was once known for its exports of fragrant and medicinal plants. And it's sad that that's not what comes to mind when Americans think of Somalia. We don't think of the beautiful landscape or the exports. What are some of the other beautiful aspects of the country that we may not realize? Somalia is strategically located in the Horn of Africa. You know, Somalia is gorgeous. You know, I mean, it is because in the days of the peace, when I was not lucky to be there, 80s and 70s and 60s, it was one of the top destinations for the Europeans and definitely Americans to come on a, on a summer visit because it's warm. Its water is warm, and as you drive through the country, you can sense the different smells of the trees that you know that 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 you can find growing on, on the sides of the streets. Um, again, I'm not. I was not that lucky to live through that beautiful Somalia. I have grown up being stuck in one neighborhood until I left. So I have discovered and traveled more in the U.S. than I did in my own country. That's interesting. I would never drive freely in my own country. And that's one of that. It's a very good question that you're asking. So if you ask this question to my father and my mother, they would just talk to you until the sun sets about the beauty that they had experienced because as nomads, they would walk 300 miles to see the country, the beauty of it. Sometimes they would wander into Ethiopian border but they would get kicked back because um, Ethiopia is another country. But to them, the world has no borders. So on your journey to the U.S., you eventually made your way from Somalia to Kenya. And at that point, you had to create some paperwork, and your birthday was just invented as January 1, 1985. But eventually, you chose June 20th as your birthday. So sort of walk me through that process. Are birthdays not important because paperwork is non-existent? Is it more of a religious reason or a nomadic reason? Freedom, you know, I need to be free not to worry about how old I am, I guess. Maybe I'm kidding. Um, so none of my family knows how old they are. I did not grow up 
thinking about birthdays. Um, my mom has never said how old she is. It's nothing to do with religion. Um, I think it is just that, you know, we in Somalia and specifically to my parents, um, being a nomad means being free of who you are. You just were born one day, like my mother would always say, and then, you know, and then when another day you die and anything in between is um, hurting your goats and animals and things like that. So why do you have to worry about um, how old you are 12 months from now, you know? And, and um, so I was born free, you know, with no, with no name, with no date of birth, just nothing. And all she can remember is it was hot, hot day, you know, humid, things like that. And Somalia is always hot. So I don't know which day out of the 365 days, you know, she means by hot. Um, when I came to Kenya, uh, that was the first time my whole life that I really had to put down my name legally in a document. And guess what that document was? It's a refugee document. So the refugee document, they need your name, but they make up the birthday. Every single Somali was born 1-1, January 1. That's what they did automatically. And I tried to argue back. I said, ah, can you just change it to World Refugee Day? And they said, nope. Thousands of people. Why are you the only one, you know? Why are you special? Right. So five years in Kenya, my birthday was January 1. I never celebrated. Um, I came to the U.S. The American government allowed me to change my birthday from January 1 to June 20th. So now, um, now that I'm in America, now that I have friends, I don't celebrate my birthday, but they do. That's what I say. I really don't. You know, if it's June 20th today, I would just do anything. I don't care about how old I'm getting and becoming today because it's not my real birthday. I have no idea how old I am. Maybe it's I, just not significant. Maybe I could be 45. I don't know. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's not significant. It doesn't come to me. It, it's not something that my mother talks about. But right here downstairs in the kitchen, they usually bring a giant cake. And who says no to that? You know? So, you know, I blow some candles and they shout happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, I go eat the dessert, you know, and then I move on. Um, but I don't really think it has any value in me. If you don't send me a letter, I'm not going to get angry because I don't care. You know, if you don't wish me happy birthday on social media, I don't, I don't really care. If you do, I don't care. Can you be an American really? I, I think it's really hard because America is so complicated. Um, America is so forgiving though too. Yeah. I, I mean, I think And you is. can chart your own path. It is, but we also need to talk about how America expects you to uh, to be like them other than them trying to be like you. I mean, right. most of the Americans are implicitly trying to accept you by your similarity. Speak English, know how to eat pie, know how to order Dunkin' Donuts, know how to order a Starbucks. Just dress like us. We're going to be all right with that. Wear a T-shirt, you know. Things like that are jeans, but if you wear a long kanzu, this you know, um, and then the head thing, they will just see you as a foreigner. You know that. Well, that is true. Yeah. Um, so that's the problem with America. So it's so implicit that most people don't really understand. Um, I have conversations with my friends, and you know, someone would say, "You don't seem like you have an accent." It's so interesting. I'm like, would it matter if I did? Well, we all have accents, though. Yeah. Let's talk about your childhood home. What did it look like? Like, what were the sounds around the home? What were the smells? Can you describe the different rooms of the home? And your bedroom especially. You talk about that, too, in the book. <laughs> um, oh, gosh, I miss so much. So people love neem trees in their houses. And then I think the first thing that you notice as you walk into a Somali house, let's say in Mogadishu, is just the exotic smell of food. Uh, it could be coffee, we call kahwa, or it could be uh, the, the anjera pancake that you know people make, um, or it could be the uh, black beans and uh, wheat that, you know, that we mix together for dinner. So those, I mean, growing up as a kid, I was, food was the most important thing, of course, you know, can't find it. Um, and there is the urn, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, U-R-N, that, you know, yes. that, 
keeps water and you know there's always a glass that sits on top and that's we don't have a running tap but that's how you get the drinking water and I sort of miss coming from soccer and bare feet and running into house and scooping up my cold glass of you know because it keeps the water cold it works like a refrigerator um and then you know one thing you might just see is people sitting around you know the, the, the way Somali houses are built is completely different than the way uh, houses in New England are built I'm not sure about other parts of the US it's mostly that you walk from the front gate and and then there is an open area which is basically the kitchen um, plus the uh, living room so there's nothing like couch or anything like that so people spread out mats or sheets of clothes and then they sit there and tell stories. So, you know, I could remember my mom and my sister sitting together, you know, by the kitchen area when it's like, you know, I walked into the into the house before I could go to my room. You know, that's what it looked like. You know, they're just sitting there. They see you come in. Um, my room or our room, my brother and I's room was, uh, was made uh, with a bunch of sticks, but then it was... Uh, uh, a cow dank was plastered on the walls. And then, so how was your room decorated? Um, room decoration is not acceptable. Uh, you can't hang on anything if it's not related to Quran. But <laughs> I used to bring uh, Madonna and Michael Jackson, you know, portraits. Madonna was in a bikini. I don't care, right? I uh, bet your mother cared. She did. She was so angry and threw me out of the house for that. She didn't like it. Um, I was always rebellion, but so, the reason I did that was I really saw kids in the movies having things in their houses, you know, like kids have toys sitting on, on their bed. It could be like a horse toy or dinosaur, you know, things like that, that, that most American kids grow up with, you know, and they love it. And up until now, you can, every house you go into, like they have things sitting around. We didn't have that. But the best thing, and I couldn't afford any of those. I, I didn't even know if they existed anywhere. But the best thing I could find is um, a worn out Madonna portrait sitting on the corner of the street. I would pick it up and just, you know, dust it off and bring it and hang it home. And I would just like to lay on the floor. I didn't have a bed. Um, what was the bed like? There was no bed, actually. I mean, we dirt had, floor? We, it was dirt floor. It was dirt floor. We didn't have a bed. Since the war began, I had a mat that was... Uh, a thin no, mat? A thin mat that was actually definitely torn. Like uh, maybe we would use for camping. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I spread it out on the floor, and that's how I laid. So how is the U.S. different than the way you imagined it would be when you were back in Somalia or Kenya? I think I have learned more about America, and the more I learned about America, the more complicated it became. Um, I don't like the fact that I still feel not safe in this country. Explain that. Um, well, I can explain that. Uh, you know that black men are being murdered in, in the U.S. Yes. by cops. So every time I'm behind the wheels, every time I run on the street, every time I order coffee, um, every time I hang out, you know, I I feel present. I feel that I need to know that I should avoid certain things. So as long as I as I feel that, it reminds me of being in Somalia, and it reminds me of being in Kenya because every time in Somalia, I had to avoid certain areas, certain things, and so that I couldn't endanger my life. In Kenya, uh, being a refugee and selling hats and socks and walking up and down the streets, uh, that was illegal. And every time it was being very cautious. And at times, you know, I got handcuffed. So America reminds me of, unfortunately, that where being a black man in one of the whitest states in the country, Maine, um, I have to be careful, you know. And I really thought, do I need to move out of Maine just because of my skin color? Do you still feel that way today? Well, about the move, I, I did consider moving out, but then and then I realized what is the main reason I'm really moving out? Maine has given me a community uh, that I love, I'm, I have a name in the community, and I do all kinds of things. 
and this state needs me. If I move out, every other black person has to move out. So what's left here, you know? And then I couldn't even accept the fact that I have to move out mostly because I'm scared of a place being dominated by white people. So I had this conversation in my mind just by myself. Anyways, back to the question. That's exactly the problem right there. Did I ever think that I had to move out to a state in the country just because you're black? There's no other reason. I didn't, you know, I couldn't find a job here. I have a job. I, you know, I built a, um, a, a, you know, integrity within a community and, and all that. But where, where in the U.S. is safe? I don't think there's anywhere safe, specifically in the last three weeks or so. Since um, Amadou Arbery and um, uh, George, George Floyd were murdered, I, I feel like, gosh, the only place that I was thinking of going out was Minneapolis because it has the largest Somali community in the country. And now look what happened. And now look what happened. So now I've definitely thrown that out of the window. Did you see the video of George Floyd? Of course I did. What were you thinking and feeling? That could have been me. It's so upsetting. Yeah, that could have been me. That's what I felt. I don't know how a human being can treat another human being that way. Well, we have racist people in this country. There were people we, uh, watching who could have turned that around. Yeah. Other cops. Yeah. That is... It really hurts. Definitely what disappoints me in the country. I, uh, I get calls from my mom my brother, my friends, my friends who I have grown up with and kept telling them America is the best place in the whole world. And if I get to America, that all the problems will be gone. You know, as I was a kid, right? Because I was so traumatized by what was happening in the area. So I kept talking much about this country until they gave me the nickname itself, American. That does not apply anymore. I'm angry, they're angry. We're both angry. We're shouting at each other. They're sometimes saying, you lie to us. Can you believe that? But I'm not in a position to argue back and forth anymore to say this is the best country in the whole world. I'm very sad to say this, but I don't say that anymore. Until I feel safe. I don't even know if I can say America's just the best anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed, honestly. Don't get me wrong. But I look at all the black people doing the videos up there and protesting. Just hear what they say. It's very emotional. And I'm not an, Af an indigenous African-American. I wasn't born in this country. So I wasn't here for this slavery or I didn't go to high school here. I didn't go to middle school here. I have no idea the history of this country up until now where I really have to learn other than what Hollywood showed me. You know, what's out there that that is creating this injustice? What, what is the criminal you know, justice system in this country? Why is it so biased towards, you know, black people? I mean, what is going on? So to me, it's more digging up and learning and, you know, and, and, and I think the more I learn, the more I feel like we really need to change. I'm not giving up on this country. This is the last option that I have. I'm not going to migrate to Canada or Russia or China. I'm not, you know, I, I, I did not want that to happen. I'm, I need to start a life. I need to just build my life here and, and make my life better. You know, I'm not here to really... It seems like we're in a fight right now, you know, and um, it's very sad. Um, As a new American, it's hard to maybe ask you to tell us what to do. But what's your perspective on what's happening right now? We need some sort of a reform in the justice system. We need something to happen to not have another black man just murdered because, they, because they're black. So as long as... I mean, now we're protesting. These protestings are, are dying down and people are going back to their houses and, and it's going to end here. But the police are out there. Um, four of them have been arrested. But how about the thousands out there who you have recruited um, in a black community and, you know, are going after? And how about those who were murdered we, that were not caught on TV or on, on camera? You know, um, I could be one, you know, I could be somewhere and, and the world will not know about me because there's no video available or no photos available. And what angers people now is just one example out of money, I think. Yes. So we need a serious conversation about this. We need lawmakers to, to, to say things. Now, 
it's just us taking the situation, the matters in our own hands because we're protesting, we're, you know, doing things. And I did protest, of course, Portland, Brunswick, I went to Lewiston, you know, I go to all the places. But then each time I came back from doing that, you know, I feel I've achieved something. I got my voice out and I exercise one of the freedom that I have in this country, which is, wow, I can go out and protest and I can do things. And I could stand face to face with a police officer and tell them what I need to tell. I couldn't do that in Somalia and in Kenya. So somehow I feel empowered doing that. Right. So that's my perspective. So we have the voice. You know, we're still speaking up. And I think it changed because I don't think if... If Minneapolis, if the people in Minneapolis didn't protest, the far cops would not be charged. I don't believe that would have happened. Within this community that I live with right now, I feel very comfortable. Um, once I get out of this community and I try to do something else in Freeport, which is not a place that they know me that much, you know, what do I feel? Right? These folks don't know me. They're driving a truck. You're a black man. Um, they could suspect you. Maybe they have seen a video of um, main television says, oh, there's a African-American man from New York smuggling drugs. You know, that, that could, somebody could say, oh, he looks like it, you know, like they did to money. Um, so somehow I do feel safe where I live, uh, mostly, because the neighbors know me, the street up and down, you know, I, I exposed myself, I, I don't hide, so I just go right. out and walk up and down. Um, so somehow they got to know me. They're not fearing. I hope they're not. I mean, because, you know, if I have a party and I go around the neighbors, they really are happy to, like, for one instance is when I became a citizen that evening, we had a party. We did um, a little bit of food and music and stuff like that. The whole community came, you know, and just for just one person who has just become a U.S. citizen. And that made me feel wonderful and beloved, you know, and um, how do I make that everywhere? Um, it depends on the people. They have to accept us. They it's a two-way street. Right, exactly. It's a two-way street. When I was very new here, I had to introduce myself, and that's in the book as well, you know, mm -hmm. knock at the neighbor's door, you know, trample lovers, but do I give a crap? You know, just knock at the door and know, tell them, you know the horse, Shadow? Yeah, that house with a barn, that's where I live, okay? You know, and then mostly it's more like, okay, thanks for letting us know. That's really interesting. It's good to know. What's your name? So I, you know, and then the next day they just see you as like, oh, the guy. Oh, he lives down that, down that house, so we don't have to suspect him. Um, when I worked with the construction company. The first job you the had. The first job. I had to wear jeans that was rough and, you know, had all these you know, um, insulation all over. Itchy. That. Itchy. So I looked more like a homeless person. If you were driving this road and saw me coming towards this house with his table gun hanging here and, you know, it's cold and I have my, you know, you would definitely feel like there's either a drug dealer or, you know, a dangerous man, black man walking. And that was very concerning. And because of that, I had to go to the police and let them know the, the job that I was doing. Right. And what so white that, person in this country has to do what you had to do? I don't think there is any. So you have two sisters and one brother, and you have had a baby sister, Sadia. Your mother would try to breastfeed her, but she wouldn't produce any milk because your mother herself was so malnourished. So I'm wondering if you might be able to read from the passage that speaks to her burial. So... We tried to dig as deep as two little boys could for baby Sadia. We had to be careful because Khadija had other bodies, including her own son, buried in the same spot. Right away, our shovel hit the foot of a dead person. We kept moving around until we found a small space unoccupied to bury Sadia. By the time the grave was ready, Sadia was dead. I looked at my baby sister and kissed her on the forehead. We wrapped her in a small white scarf and laid her in her tiny grave before sunset, when the dogs would start roaming the streets. Mom cried tears of sadness, but also tears of joy because she knew Malakulmot had carried Sadia, Sadia's soul 
up to heaven. And in Islam, a child's death means protection for the mom from hell. Then we poured sand all over her until we could no longer see her. No one came for condolences. Hassan and I shared the death of our sister with friends and people in the neighborhood, but no one expressed sorrow or even cared. Death was everywhere. It was not a big deal. It was nothing to talk about. After a few prayers, not a big deal. Uh, after a few prayers, we, we got on with our own survival. In a few days, Sadia's grave disappeared into the dust. She did not have a grave marker, just sand. As a mother myself, I think that's one of the hardest parts of the book that I read. And that must have been so traumatic because you didn't really get to process what happened within the larger community. I think we did not want to process at all. It, you know, it's just a... Uh, we wanted the days to go by. We wanted to see what was at the end of the journey. You know, I mean, when Sadia died, I was ready to die. I, I, it's excruciating. You know, it's painful to live that life, to know that you're hungry, you know, your stomach, your body is eating itself. Um, you could be killed by a straight bullet. Somehow, like I was saying here, my mom also had tears of joy because she knew that Sadia had left the pain of earth, you know, and that she was in a much better place. And, you know, I believed if heaven was real, you know, I, don't, I didn't even know why I was in hell because the life that I lived was hell. Hell right on earth. Hell on earth, yes. I, I mean, people talked about hell after death, but I didn't believe that other hell even existed. because That we it could get even worse. worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, hunger is the worst enemy, I would say. It, it's, it's, there's nothing more traumatizing than knowing you're hungry, but that food's not coming. I mean, imagine today, if I'm hungry, I could just go downstairs and fix something, whatever's in there, pasta, rice, and things like that. But when you know that you don't have those, but you're also hungry, life teaches you or, or you know, gives you... Um, some ways to to find out. I mean, we we ate the sour uh, uh, seeds from the neem trees, which, uh, thinking about it today, is just so disgusting. Um, but actually, when you're hungry, that kind of thing tests. Okay, because it's might just you have something in your belly that can keep you breathing, you know. Um, but I think the only way that I can describe is the pain that comes from inside combined with the pain that comes from outside because hunger also really makes your skin fall off. You know, I mean, I had bruises all over my body, mostly because uh, other than tripping and, and hitting myself somewhere, but it was mostly just that your body changed. Your skin doesn't have the energy, the nutrition that you really want to give it to, you know, and, and, uh, and he looked like a skeleton. Um, I couldn't see myself in a mirror, but seeing my sister um, and my brother and their eyes sinking and, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just skeleton moving around. You know, that's, that's the way I could put it. But, like, seeing, you know, American action films, finding food, you know, there in the television itself... And, you know, how America takes everything for granted, like they're eating something at the restaurant and then some violence begins and then they leave the whole <laughs> And the food's still and on the, food the table. Still there, yes. You would never do that. No, I, I still, <laughs> actually, I still don't do that. If you ever go to a restaurant with me, ever, you're not going to see me taking uh, or leaving anything in the plate. I just clear it. Um, I do here at dinner table as well. I mean... You know, we have chickens, but Sharon mostly says, oh, let's just leave this for the chickens, and I would eat it. It's nothing against the chickens, but it's just the way I am. I can't really... I, I get it. Yeah, I can't let food waste. Uh, they do it in Hannaford here, Walmart. I mean, all kinds <laughs> of bread that they throw away. <laughs> yeah, it drives me crazy because my family are still hungry. It's so precious to you. So precious to me, yeah. 
So not only being malnourished, but also all of the violence around you, that was completely traumatic, and you were eventually diagnosed with PTSD. Are you okay today? Do you feel mentally strong? Do you feel like there are still struggles in your mind from the past that you just can't stop reliving in your dreams or your nightmares? Oh, there's a war in, going on in my mind. I, I'm trying to be mentally strong, but I have PTSD plus panic attacks, um, meaning I wake up every night, almost every night, you know, um, feeling like something was happening in my nightmares and uh, I breathe heavily and I can't go back to sleep. So I have that struggle. Um, the BTSD, and I have someone I go to, counselor, I talk to, um, the best thing I can do right now is do outdoor stuff, distract yourself. But when my phone rings and it's my mother or my sister, and my mother says, oh, your sister went out this morning and there was a bomb, but we, don't, we can't find her. And what am I supposed to do? Right? So my mom tells me information. And if I'm driving between Boston and Maine and I'm just enjoying listening to the podcast or music and somehow my mind goes out from, from my life and then all of a sudden with mom calling, I have to pull to the side. You're right back home. I'm right back home. And then now I worry for the rest of the journey. I'm just struggling to, to keep up with my own, you know. So it's not going to end as long as I have family members who are talking to me about scary stuff and death and hunger and, you know, all kinds of things. And my sister has five kids and they're going through the same process, FGM, marriage, you know, all these kind of things. And Female genital mutilation. Right, exactly. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't change the culture. It's right there. So you're supporting um, her five children I do to the best of your of ability. Yeah. And then you have a brother who made it to Canada. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Hassan. He made it, you know, that's all I can say. He, uh, it, it, he was, because of the travel ban, America denied his visa, um, refugee visa, 17 years of refugee process. Se after 17 years, Trump comes in one year and he quickly strikes it, says, nope, we're not going to let you in. So he was denied and then I didn't sleep for a few days. I had, I was worried that he, he was going to take his own life. You know, it's been very difficult. So we, um, I put together Team America and Team Canada. And Team America and Team Canada partnered together and we raised a lot of money to convince the Canadian government to sponsor, a Canadian organization to sponsor my brother. And that took about a year and a half. And eventually my brother landed in December 2019. So when his plane took off, I took off from me. So I drove from here to go all the way to Toronto and to pick him up. Uh, I was not a citizen yet. I became a citizen in January, so this was December. Um, so I had a little hard time at the border, you know, where they said, you need to give us a passport from Somalia. It's like, it doesn't exist, come on, you know. So they gave me three days to get in and pick my brother and take him home and hang out with them and come back. So um, my brother and I did a tour. I wouldn't say a tour, I would say a walk. We walked all across downtown Canada uh, uh, Toronto, sorry. Um, and we called it the Walk of Freedom because he and I, as kids, held hands and walked up to get water to our family. And, you know, we he was ready to take the bullet for me, you know, and I was there for him. But now we recreated that, you know, just he's much taller than me. We grown up man. Um, and we look each other in the eyes and I said, I still feel like we're kids, you know, and he said the same thing. And now he has a wife and three kids, and I was able to see them all. Um, yeah, um, his, his kids are autism. Uh, he has how many children? Three, but you, two of the twins are autism. Because, oh, oh, two of the children have autism. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the way they, well, they were born, and they have not seen any other human being. They can't, they, they can't speak, you know, for years, but they can't. Mute, just, yeah. more or less. Yeah. So a very serious case. Oh, it is. Um, yeah, it probably needs quite a process, quite some time, I think, for them to get better. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. Life. As a father and yeah. as an, an uncle. Uncle, yep. 
Hey, so back onto a lighter subject. What kind of American music do you like? What kind of movies do you like? I know you alluded to some of the older movies I in love your book. Yeah. Who do you like? Well, I, I'm a 90s guy. So I still listen to Fifth Cent, you know, uh, uh, Snoop Doggy Dog. Uh, do I like the brand new hip hop? I don't think I am into it mostly. I you, I mean, I'm 35 now. I'm mean, turn, turning 35 this June, but you know how uh, um, the music that I used to hear when I was in Somalia, but I did not understand the lyrics, is the one that I love and appreciate more now, because it's part of. I don't see it as a music anymore, but I see it as 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 a bringing, as a growth, you know, into my own life. So I I, I stick with it, and uh, so when I'm doing something, that's what I listen to. But I think I, if I have time and if I have to play anything on my phone, I'm a podcast person. So I do like to listen to stories more than the music. But when I can, and I have to turn into music, that is what I do. Are there any newer movies that you've really enjoyed? Uh, yes, I have. Um, I'm catching up with the Harry Potter series. Yep. Star Wars. You know, it's interesting because Americans know all these movies. They had seen as kids. I have not. Right, but right. I'm tired of them talking about it from Thanksgiving all the way to Christmas. They just keep talking about it. And then I felt like, you know what? So that I can belong to the conversation because I usually feel like disconnected when... All these cultural references. Right, exactly. So I'm catching up. Um, I've... Well, I'm almost done with Harry Potter now, uh, Star Wars. Um, but then other, you know, brand new movies, I just browse through Netflix and just watch what I like. So, Abdi, you now have the right to vote. Mm-hmm. What values do you hold dear and what do you look for in a candidate? Well, first of all, it means everything that I am able to vote because I've never voted in my whole life. So it's a power that I can't wait to exercise. Well, I already did, of course, but I can't wait to vote in the presidential election that's coming up. Um, I want uh, a leader who can bring this country back together. We just have a horrible leader right now, someone who's so disgusting, um, and I have to say this on the radio, Someone who does not stand for this country. Someone someone who's just making America look so horrible. Very divisive. Yes. This country was an exceptional, a place that everybody dreamed to come in. A place that had hope for... Okay, I'll give you one example. Um, in If I was still a teenager in Somalia and we had President Trump, I think I would join Al-Shabaab. Really? Yeah. But before Trump, as a kid, I have, and this is also in my book, I have listened to all the president's speeches because I was addicted to anything American, music, you know, things like that. And even listening to Bush, who invaded Iraq and Afghanistan, he definitely said some things that make sense to someone who loves America, you know. I mean, the way he would just, uh, in one of his Bush's speeches, he would say, we love Muslims. They're part of this country. He did say that. I remember he that. definitely did say that. So that so It was a different Republican Party then. It was. But now we have someone who says, we hate these people. We're going to put a travel ban on them. Bring Somalia in the list. I mean, imagine, what if I was a teenager today, that Trump takes power and I was in Somalia... I would lose my American dream. I would not want it because this man looks at all, you know, makes it look hard. So what I'm saying is now he's actually creating more American enemies. He's creating more ISIS and Al-Shabaab and, you know, things like that. The people who would have kept dreaming of coming here now have to give up because that's where we are. We you are shoot. so lucky you got here when you did. I am. Yeah, and I'm sure I you agree. realize that. I agree with you. So as a child, you were obligated to memorize the Quran. You obviously know the Quran, forwards and backwards and sideways. And that was even at the expense of a well-rounded education. You didn't really get an education other than learning that book. And when the topic of Islam comes up here in America, I hear a lot of fear. I hear a lot of suspicion. I haven't read the Quran. Mm -hmm. A number of Americans haven't read it either. Mm -hmm. 
How can you bring us together in a religious sense? What do we need to understand about Islam? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, first of all, ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram, anybody who's blowing things up today do not represent Islam. So I want people to understand that. Islam basically means peace. Okay. And then I think through the years, people have, men have basically hijacked the, the idea of Islam to their own benefit, uh, oppressing women and things like that. It's it's just, I don't think it's the way God intended it. I agree. Um, so I really, I want the Americans listening to this to know that majority of us, people who are in the faith, Islamic faith, are people like you. We don't even have to pray five times a day, you know, but we love life. We like to hike. We like to eat things. We like to just talk to people. Um, Somebody wearing a turban and blowing themselves up does not represent me. Okay. So that is, um, that's one thing. But I mean, the way I described my upbringing and learning the Quran in Somalia is a way to revolutionize the future of, of, you know, handling children. That was a very brutal way to force someone to learn, you know, the Quran. and that, The beatings that, you had. The beatings that I had. And that's nothing to do with Islam. People have made it all up. You know, someone has decided if I beat them, torture and threaten, they, they might, go, you know, they might learn that. And I have every right, every right to fight that back. So if you read that, do not assume that that's what Islam is. Islam stands for. I think it's important that people have to travel to Malaysia, Indonesia, you know, countries like that, which is so diverse, but predominantly Muslim, and that you will get to know that one Muslim father has a Christian daughter and his Muslim kid, you know, son, and both have boyfriends, girlfriends. You know, that's what I heard. It's more like a pretty diverse place where no religion is trying to uh, impre- uh, oppress or impose themselves themselves and proselytize others that's what we need Saudi Arabia you know I I don't like them I don't like the way kingdom works I don't like the way people have you have to ask women to not drive a car because that's what you know baseless it's completely just making it up to oppress you know things but that's I don't think if Prophet Muhammad was around he would not be happy with that because his wives were businesswomen they adventured. They did things. They could leave the house, you know, hang around, wear their jewelry. They were just free. But what we have today is completely not what Prophet Muhammad would want, you know. So um, that's the way I understand it. Um, and since we love, we live in a completely different world now, I think there's plenty of opportunities. And uh, if someone defines being Muslim as like praying five times a day and being stuck in the mosque, that's not that's not right. Not right. <laughs> I feel uh, proud that I know everything that I know from the Quran and I still be able to just pursue my other dreams. So speaking of your dreams, you're now enrolled at Boston College and you're studying for a political science degree. Mm-hmm. What do you hope to do with that degree and with your life in the next five, ten years? Yeah, I am really hoping that I get, um, I, I, I utilize the network that I have now as, um, as an author and the platform that I have to change generation. Um, for instance, now I know why Somalia is at war. I know why we're struggling to really find peace and come together. And there's a lot of, you know, um, certainly uh, uh, things that we need to talk about. And and I think the same way that it feels more like empowering the African-American young generation to um for them to live a better life in the future, that's the same thing I'm interested in doing in Somalia, where it's like empowering men and women equally um, so that, you know, we have to run Somalia as Somalia, not as a tribal state. Back to the Somali language, could you teach me a few phrases like, hello, goodbye, maybe some other phrases that you like? My favorite phrase uh, word in Somali is hoyo. It means mom. Somali language is rich. Um, that's why they call us the uh, nation of poets or a society that speaks orally. We talk a lot and we enjoy talking a lot. Um, 
So to teach you a few expressions, are you going to say it after me or what? Yes. Okay. So say, Mahat Senit. Mahat Senit. Mahat Senit. Mahat Senit. That means thank you. Mahat Senit. Mahat Senit. Yep. Thank you. Um, Ada Mudan. Adan Modan. Ada Mudan. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. Setahai. Setahai. Yes. I think I got that's, that one on the first that's try. How are you? Yes. <laughs> what themes will you explore in the new book? Well, the new book is basically an update. Um, my brother's in Canada. It's not in the first book. Uh, my naturalization ceremony, which I have written a lot about the feelings, emotions, and all that, um, is also included in the next book. Um, and, uh, you know, my views of America, which have really evolved, as you can see, and my family and the future and the uncertainty and what I really need in life, you know, it's like pieces coming together. Um, when do you think that book might be published? Um, I don't know. Probably next year. Do you have a compelling story? Or do you know someone I should interview? Drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Please tell a friend to listen too. That's how we grow our audience and continue podcasting. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation.